Forest City Church. Anyone and everyone. We've been in this series um, where we've been talking about prayer. And the first four or five weeks that we dove into prayer, we were looking at the Shema, this ancient prayer that um, we, we taught through. And now we're sort of turning the corner and we're going to look at different types of prayer. And I don't want to say this about prayer. We're not talking over the next few weeks about prayer. We're not just trying to learn something about prayer. We're trying to become people of prayer. See? And that's totally different, right? Like, we're not trying to teach you something you can regurgitate back to someone. We're trying to understand how do we become people of prayer. And it's funny because prayer is one of those things that if you think about prayer life, it is one of those things that is, it comes absolutely natural and yet at the same time is exceedingly difficult. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know what I'm saying. You've been in a spot where like you got yourself in a pickle. Anybody ever been in a pickle? Anybody, you know? Drove your parents' car when you were 16. They didn't give you permission. And when you came back into the garage, you accidentally backed into the tractor and dented the whole front side of the car. Nobody else but me. That, my friends, is what we like to call a pickle. And I can tell you that when you find yourself in a moment like that, at 16 years old, I did one thing really fast. what I do? Pray. <laughs> you start praying. It comes, it comes very naturally to us when we find ourselves in need. And people know, like, prayer's important. We, um, we write songs about it. We talk about it. I mean, even those that aren't devout find themselves on a regular basis praying. I think the stat is 70% of most Americans will have said they've prayed at least one time in the last 60 days. Like, it, it comes natural to us. But to go cultivate a life where prayer is at the center of it, I, that's more challenging. Because honestly, if we were to take a poll of this place today and I ask you, how's your prayer life? Enough said because it can be a struggle to cultivate a prayer life. And that's why we're in this series, is to try to understand how do we cultivate life of prayer? Because it is in that that we are connected to this God that we just sang about. Let me say something about that song. I think, um, I think I, I, was, I was watching the lyrics of that song and I, I um, sometimes am at awe as to how our worship team picks the songs they do because I thought, wow, um, this message might just fit with this song so perfectly because think about all that God can do and I've got to thinking about why is it, God, that you don't show up in the way that I want you to? Or, or why does it feel like my life is still a mess? Why does things feel so out of sort. And what I've come to understand is it has very little to do with God's power. It has almost everything to do with me. My disposition, where I'm at, the things I want, what I ignore. 
my refusal to get out of the messes that I'm in. And that's what this prayer is about today. Now, if you haven't listened to any of the past few weeks, you can go back to our podcast and um, you, you can catch up. And I, I would encourage you to do that. But here's, here's the reality of today's prayer. I actually think this is one of the most challenging things to learn how to pray. It's the prayer of confession. Like, how do we pray when we fail? How, how do you work through failure in our prayers? This is what James 5.16 says. The Bible teaches us, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's a connection between confession and healing. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Prayers of confession. Now, when I say the word confession, I wonder, like, what do you think of, right? Like, when I say the word confession, for real, what do you think about? Probably think about what I think about, which is, like, you think about someone who's done something wrong, and a confession is something like you, you imagine, like, you're in a room, one of those um, dark rooms with two-sided glass, and, and there's a bad guy on one side of the table, and there's a good guy on the other side of the table, Right? And the good guy comes in, and, and there's usually two good guys. There's one, there's actually a good one and a bad one. It's a good cop, bad cop. And, and someone's broken the law, and these two got to work this fella over to get what? A confession, right? And so that, that person's going to fight and, and, and not say the truth, and they're going to do their thing, and, but finally they're going to get a confession. And once you confess, now you're going to jail. You're in trouble. I mean, this is what we, what we think about with confession. And so it's no wonder that when we think about the prayer of confession, we might imagine that it's me and God sitting in this black box and he's on one side of the table and I'm on the other. And my job is just sort of like stone cold freeze God out, that he's just trying to get something out of me, squeeze something out of me. And I think that's the problem with the idea of confession. And the reason why, dare I say, very few of us actually practice a prayer of confession. Let me say this from the jump. Folks, you are going to screw stuff up. Why? Because you're human. You're going to blow it. You're gonna mess stuff up. You're gonna snap at your wife. You're gonna snap at your wife at a dinner. You're gonna snap at your wife at a dinner that she planned and it was supposed to be a really nice dinner. But she's gonna say something you don't like and then you're gonna snap at her and you're gonna ruin the dinner. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I did it two nights ago. <laughs> you're gonna just mess stuff up. You're gonna blow up. You're gonna snap at your family. You're gonna hurt people. Because you're human. You're just gonna mess stuff up. And yet, this idea that we're human, even though I would say that our culture has embraced it more recently, that we're sort of human and our humanness, the reality is most of our life is spent trying to cover up all the imperfections. This is what we spend most of our time doing. 
It's why we choose the, the clothes that we wear. We spend most of our time covering up. It's the way we act, the way we look, the makeup we wear, the way we do our beard, <laughs> right? We're, we're covering up these things because there's something about being honest and open about all of our imperfections that makes us feel uncomfortable. And so we hide. And the truth is, even as Christians, like we've been doing this from the very beginning. Go to Genesis chapter three. What happens? As soon as sin enters the picture with Adam and Eve, we find in verse eight, it says this, then the man and his wife, that's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord. God's coming to visit with them. Not put them into like a little cube and interrogate them. God's coming to spend time with these two people that he created. And watch what happens when sin enters the picture. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from him. They hid. In verse nine it says, but the Lord God called to them, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. I was afraid that you're gonna see all my vulnerabilities and all the the fact that I'm messed up. I, I was afraid that you're gonna see my brokenness and call me out. I was afraid that I was gonna have to confess And maybe you're going to send me off to some penal code, God. There's something about being uncovered. It's hard for all of us, right? It's shameful. It's frightening. And yet, there is something about this process of confession that is embedded in our faith. I I, I was reading this week, there's a psalm, and I encourage you, if if you have time, write this down, Psalm 32. Read that whole psalm. In fact, read it this week. If you really want to see the psalmist, as he writes about confession, the, the freedom that comes when we're no longer trying to cover all of our imperfections. But I was reading it this week, and I... I read verse one. Listen to what verse one says. It says, blessed, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. That sounds really great. But what David goes on to say is that The key to that blessed forgiveness is this idea that I'm able to confess all that's broken in me. Look what he says in verse three when he says, when I kept silent, when when we're not honest about who we are, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you did not cover my inequity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This whole psalm is about the power of confession. The power. And as I was reading and praying through this psalm this week, I had a story that just like, like it, it, it just 
planted in my mind. I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me to this moment in my life that helped me understand the power of confession. So I was probably 11 years old. And um, my mom uh, is uh, from Texas. She grew up in Texas. Her family is a gigantic family. She uh, came from um, a family that always came home at Christmas time. And my mom was just one of three children, but her mom was one of nine. And so when we all came together in Grand Prairie, Texas, every Christmas, there were like 200 people. I was so many. And, and since the time I had been born until this time of this story, which was probably about 10 or 11 years old, we'd always gone back to Texas at Christmas. And because there were 200 people that seemed to come around at Christmas time, we had to find places to sleep, right? You couldn't all stay at great-grandmother's house. So this, this, uh, this Christmas, we went to my uncle's house. This is my mom's brother. Now, he lived, you have to imagine, like, um, this was a time in Texas when there was a 1980s, there was this housing boom, and they were building houses that all looked the same everywhere. You've seen those neighborhoods, right? You ever been through one of those neighborhoods where literally there seems to be 10,000 houses? Every single house looks exactly the same. And that was my uncle's neighborhood. So we pulled in, and my uncle had uh, my two cousins. They were similar age, and we're in this neighborhood that just looked like suburbia. When one afternoon, my cousin was like, hey, man, I'll, I'll race you to the park down the street. I'm like, well, where's the park? He goes, it's just down the street. It's no big deal. He jumps on his bike. He takes off. I jump on my bike. I go to take off and race him to the park, right? Well, he takes off, and, and he probably turns two corners, and pretty soon, uh, what seemed like a right turn, I get to another corner, and I can't see him, so I go left, and then I go right, and, and what I realize is I don't know where he's at, and I don't know where the park is. So I'm like, well, I'm going to go back home, and I'll wait for him. What a jerk, you know? So I get on my bike, and I ride back to my, um, to my uncle's house. I get off my bike, and... He's not there. I don't see his bike anywhere. So I go up to the front door and I go into the house and um, I'm looking for my mom. I don't see my mom. So I go to the, and I remember this clear as day and you're going to see why. I go to the um, kitchen and I get some orange juice and, and I, I notice something. I noticed that there was country music playing in the background. Well, we don't, we don't listen to country music. We lived in Texas, but that's not like something my dad would listen to. I grew up listening to Motown. That's what my family sort of listened to. So like listening to Hank Williams seemed really strange. I poured some orange juice and looked around the house. I go, well, I don't remember that couch there. I walked to the front room, I was looking at the TV. I was like, did, did they... Did they rearrange this whole house? When all of a sudden, I hear a voice from down the hallway. Hello? And it was like one of those all-point news bulletins in an 11-year-old's mind that went, country music, couches moved, TV's in the wrong place. That's not your dad. You're in the wrong house. I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm in the wrong house. I'm in the wrong house. Now you have to remember this is 1980s. So this is when they started putting kids' pictures on milk cartons, right? I'm thinking, this is how kids get on milk cartons. Oh my gosh, I'm in the wrong house. I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong house. 
I, I stumble over the counter. Then you hear the guy go, hello, hello, who's here? Well, he, of course, has to be freaking out because he's got an 11-year-old burglar in his house, right? I jump out the front door. I get on my bike. My heart is racing, racing. I'm like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. I get on the bike, and I'm like, I got to get out of here. I just have to go somewhere. I have to go anywhere. So I just take off. I don't know how many lefts, rights, rights, lefts I took. All I know is after about 15 minutes when all the adrenaline poured out of my body, I looked around and it's like literally one of those horror movies where I've been riding for 15 minutes and all the houses still look the same. I'm like, I'm lost. I'm so lost. Oh my gosh, I'm lost. And I remember, I got off my bike and at 11, guys remember, this is like 1985. There are no cell phones. You don't know where your parents are. You can't get a hold of them. There aren't telephones. I mean, I could write a letter, but then they'd get back to me in six days. I'm standing on the corner and I get off my bike and I remember it clear as day. I just start crying, like bawling. I'm so lost. I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I literally have no idea. I set that bike down on the corner. I sat on this little curb. 11-year-old just, just bawled. I just bawled. I, I remember thinking, well, I'm never going to see my parents again. I'm never going to get home. I mean, maybe this is why they had three kids, in case they lose one. They still have two. <laughs> I don't know. I'm so heartbroken, right? Like lost and I pick my bike up and I try to get my thoughts together, but I think there's no way out of this. I have no way of getting home. I just walk. Now, I don't know how long I walked around the streets of suburban Dallas. It seemed like hours and it might have been. But after an hour or two of just walking, there, there was this sense of resolve like, well, you, you messed it up, you dummy. You don't know phone numbers. You don't write anything down. This is on you. This is on you. You're gonna have to toughen up. You're gonna have to learn how to live on the streets of the Dallas suburbs. Right? You have all these crazy thoughts at 11. And I still remember I'm, I'm walking down the street after I've probably been gone for two or three hours now. I've been wandering around what was probably the same circle over and over, but I'm walking down the street and I remember hearing a car screech behind me. I didn't look, I just kept walking. I was so bummed that this is what my life had come to. Then I hear a car go, from the screech, goes in reverse and I turn around and I see a car flash backward through an intersection, stop again, and then crank around and start heading toward me. And in that moment, I knew, that's my mom. That's my mom. That's my mom. That's my mom. I remember like dropping the bike. I was like, ah, ah. I go running, right? My mom, 
This is like a movie. She throws the car into park and she opens the door and she jumps out. She starts running towards me. She's like, where have you been? And I'm like, I'm so sorry. And I just lose it. I lose it. I'm so sorry. I've been lost. I don't know what I'm doing. I want to do this other guy's house. I stole some of his orange juice. I'm probably going to go to jail, right? You're freaking out. I'm so lost. And my mom just grabs me and hugs me. She's it's going to be fine. You're safe. You're safe. You're safe. I'm like, mom. I've been gone, I've been gone, I've been gone, I don't know. I just want to go home. And We picked my bike up and we threw it in the trunk. And What I, what I came to find out is, you know, I, I had been lost for probably three and a half hours. And in that time, there was the first portion where I had no idea that I was lost and life was great. Then there was the second portion where I felt absolutely heartbreaking because life was over. And then there was the third portion where I felt lost and I was resolved to my lostness. But here's what was pretty cool is that, um, that in all of that, my mom had been looking for me for almost the entirety of my lostness. See, because what happened was, and I didn't know it, is as soon as I lost my cousin and he figured out I wasn't with him. He doubled back to the house. I had been lost for maybe five minutes when my mom jumped in the car and started to drive around the streets. I mean, she was looking for me before I knew I was lost. You know, when you think about the beauty of what God promises us. In Psalm 32, verse seven, he's, he, says, he says this to God. He said, you're my hiding place. You're gonna protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. But when did he say this? He says it out of verses where he confesses all of his brokenness and says everything he is and all of his lostness is put on the table. It's ironic because our vision of confession is that when we confess, we get put into jail. But what David says is when you confess, you get a, a hiding place, not a prison. You get the safety, not this insecurity. For a city... So often we think like the good life is money and being peaceful and living on a beach somewhere. But Psalm 32 says, no, there is this good life where we aren't perfect. We're pretty flawed and broken and lost and wandering around. The good life is those who know they're lost. It's like, why is it we're so afraid to just bring all of our brokenness on the table? Why is it we're so afraid? And it's because we're so afraid. If you think about it, fear is the primary driver that keeps us from honestly coming and confessing who we really are to God to showing up in spaces like this and not pretending that we're better than we really are, right? 
It is fear, and if you're honest with yourself, I'm sure your story's like mine. Some of the worst decisions I've ever made in my life is based on fear. Afraid of what someone's gonna think or afraid of what someone's gonna say. I've changed not just sweatshirts and sneakers because of what someone might think. I've changed patterns and progressions in my life afraid of what someone might think of me. Someone might judge me. Think I don't have it all together, don't know the answer. And all these fears is what's crazy about it. You're not born with many fears, like two. You're born with the fear of loud noises and falling. So every other fear that have kept us from honestly approaching this God who loves us. Full brokenness and all is just this fear that someone else taught you. Afraid that maybe you have to have it more put together. This is why throughout that Psalm that I want you to read this week, he talks about confession, bringing our brokenness, but then he goes on and on. Like in verse 10 when he says, many of the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts him. When we trust him to confess our brokenness and we don't hide and play games with him. And I get it, I get it. The prayer of confession, which is really a prayer of failure. It's hard in the culture we live in, right? We're Americans, we don't fail. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we carry on. Failure, it's not in our vocabulary to fail, to say, I failed with my son and I failed with my daughter and I failed in my marriage. We don't say those things, I get it. But there is power and freedom in bringing who we really are uncovered to God. I also get why we don't confess because we don't have a culture that allows for confession much anymore. You know, a buzzword is cancel culture, but how we do it in the church too? So much easier to just like not respond to an email or to a text. It's so much easier just to be like, yeah, you know what, you hurt me. I'm just not gonna go there anymore. So much easier to let someone's failure be permanent and you say, no, I'm done with that. And it makes confession one to another hard because we're afraid, like, if I confess that I broke something with you, are you gonna put me out to pasture? Confession. See, I told that story because the beauty of being found by my mother and I think the power of it was that there was awareness of my lostness that I didn't know when I first got lost. There is power in being rescued when you know you need to be rescued. There is so much 
that we gain from this sheltering place when we know we need it. And what confession does for us, whether we do it or not, is it makes us acutely aware of our lostness. Acutely aware of what we need. And it makes us so appreciative of what God gives us. Because think about it. In your lostness, he was looking for you. Before you even gave him the time of day, God was looking for you. There's nothing... If that's true, there's really a lot of hope for us because God isn't a cancel God. I mean, if he was looking for you before you knew you were lost, then that means he's gonna stick with you even as you mess stuff up. That he's gonna ride with you even when you're imperfect. He wants to know the whole of you, all of you, all of it. And so what is the prayer of confession? It is the hardest yet the simplest thing we can do. It's the acknowledgement of my lostness. So what would it look like this week for City Church if, number one, we just named it in our prayers. You don't even have to stretch out to someone next to you. You don't have to pull somebody into this prayer of confession yet. But, but what, what if we just named it? The thing you've been hiding, pretending isn't there. You, you shelter God from it. You're afraid if he sees it, you're, you're in trouble. What if we just name it in our prayer this week? God, this is my brokenness. I see it. This is it. Stop covering it. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses, forsakes them, will obtain mercy. Do you want freedom? It is found in Jesus. But we predicate all of it that we confess our sins with our mouth, right? If you look at the Romans road that we talk about coming to faith in Jesus, it's the power of profession, confession. I heard this story some years back. John Ortberg said that one of the things he started practicing with the prayer of confession is to bring somebody into his space that was another human being. Because it is powerful to each morning confess through prayer our brokenness, our lostness, that we aware, we're aware that he was looking for us when we had no clue and did not care. And he still is looking for us in these moments when we're ashamed and we try to cover. He said, but there is power in bringing someone else into the circle with you and confessing your sins one to another. The Bible calls us to it. And he said, uh, some years back, John said he, he and a close friend decided that the first thing they would do every morning was call each other and confess their sins one to another. First thing in the morning. They had been doing it for years. I want to say close to a decade. Every single morning. Not, hey, how are you doing? Hey, let's pretend. Hey, 
how'd the Cubs do? Hey, what's going on with football? No, no, the first thing they did is the deep, darkest, scariest, grossest part of who they were, the stuff that we spend all our time covering, they would just put it on the table and say, here's how I blew it last night. And John will tell you, it has opened his sense and his reception, his receptors for grace in ways that otherwise he feels he could not receive it. To confess. Because it is in the confession we realize something powerful. The first John 1.19 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The power of the prayer of confession. I pray this week for City Church that you'll give it a try. That you'll stop covering up and pretending you have it all together and maybe just once this week you open up your hands and to this God that loves you before you knew you were lost be open about your lostness will you stand with me let's close in this classic hymn about surrender 